Elon Berman is Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council here in our nation's capital. He's an expert on regional security in Russia, Central Asia, and the Middle East. He's consulted for the U.S. Departments of State and Defense and for the intelligence community. He's the author of quite a few books, most recently, Wars of Ideas, Theology, Interpretation, and Power in the Muslim World. He's here to talk with me about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, the status of Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine, and an incisive scholarly article he recently wrote. It's titled, The Sources of Russian Conduct. I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Well, welcome, Ilan. Good to be with you today. Lots to talk about. No time to waste, but even so, let's start with a little bit about you. So how did you get into the think tank racket? Oh, because, well, first of all, thanks, Cliff, for for having me. Uh, I got in the think tank racket, frankly, because I made for a terrible lawyer. Um, I'm a a recovering lawyer by uh, by education. Um, I uh, went to law school and and fairly quickly realized that the law firm route was not for me. And I was doing a joint degree at the time, and I leaned very heavily into the uh, foreign policy international relations part of my graduate degrees. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. So, what part of the country are you from originally? Uh, I'm from all over. I was born in Israel, uh, grew up in uh, in New England. Um, uh, I am a townie uh, from New Haven, Connecticut, because my parents are at Yale. Uh. So I, I did not go to Yale. I did not have the uh, the honor, uh, but uh, but I do know where the best pizza is there. <laughs> okay, very good. All right. Now we have to talk a little bit about Mikhail Gorbachev, who died over recent days. And, you know, there's been interesting. Uh, there's one piece that George Will really, when he when he when he's up to par, he really hits it out of the park. I'm just going to read the lead, as we say in the journalism biz, from his most recent column. And we'll talk about that. George Will writes, failing upward into the world's gratitude. Mikhail Gorbachev became a hero by precipitating the liquidation of the political system he had tried to preserve with reforms. He is remembered as a visionary because he was not clear-sighted about socialism's incurable systemic disease. He cannot cope with the complexity of dispersed information in a developed nation. Like Christopher Columbus, who accidentally discovered the new world, Gorbachev stumbled into greatness by misunderstanding where he was going. Oh, that's pretty good, and it's pretty tough. Now, other people, William Taubman, Taubman, a biographer of Gorbachev, is much more charitable. He says Gorbachev tried to save the Soviet Union but ended up hastening its destruction. Um, give, give me your take on, on, on Gorbachev in, in, in brief. How do, you, how do you see the guy? 
Well, I, I really love that will piece, um, which I read in whole. And, you know, I, I commend to the audience that they do the same if they haven't yeah. yet. But it because it really tapped into something that I heard all throughout my undergraduate career and my graduate career. Right. Because when you're a uh, my, my family uh, is uh, my parents are Soviet refuseniks. Um, they uh, sort of grew up under the Soviet Union. I've spent a lot of time uh, in post-Soviet Russia. Right. I, I, I speak the language. I'm a native Russian speaker. I sort of I understand the system really well. And so what was really fascinating to me as I was going through my academic studies was that there were really two prevailing theories about Gorbachev. One was that he was a great man of history, that he was this visionary who came to power and realized that, you know, the, the uh, repressive Soviet system was unsustainable and initiated this opening up. Uh, right. This moderation opening up. Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, and that's the first theory. And that was, by the way, the, the prevailing theory throughout all of the 1990s uh, about uh, sort of thinking about, uh, you know, the optimism that that uh, followed the Soviet collapse, the optimism that followed the heady early days of post-Soviet Russia, that Gorbachev was really he really had his finger on the pulse of something. And And by the way, that's an argument that still pertains now, because, you know, in recent days, we've seen, you know, articles from. Um, uh, from publications like the Wall Street Journal talking about the fact that Gorbachev almost brought Russia to democracy, right? Um, but to me, the second theory, the theory that Will taps into is really the more interesting one. Um, it's not a question of of the fact that he caused irreparable damage to the Soviet system. I mean, he he obviously did. But the question to me is whether he did it on purpose or by accident. Mm. And, you know, I, I tend to sort of to uh, lean into the will school, the idea that Mikhail Gorbachev, who was a product of the system, he may have been more moderate and, and softer than Khrushchev or Brezhnev, but he was clearly cut from the same cloth, uh, broadly speaking. Um, I think he really unleashed forces uh, in this, you know, opening up uh, the Soviet Union to market economics, to Western politics unleashed forces that he couldn't control. And it led to the demise of the Soviet Union because he fundamentally misunderstood that the Soviet Union was a, a unitary, unreformable construct. And that's right. where, so that's where, sort of where I end up. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, as you pointed, I want, I want to remind people, they, in case they forgot, glasnost essentially means transparency or openness. It means you get, it means freedom of speech to a great extent. You get to criticize and you get to read things that you couldn't read and unless you were at high level in the Soviet era, right? And perestroika meant the restructuring of the economy. And part of what it's, it is not easy to, this is an important point for, I think, to recognize that it, it's it's very easy to take a capitalist economy and turn it into a socialist economy. You just need to make everybody dependent on the government. You need to have a lot of government. Rate. I mean, that's what you know Bernie Sanders is trying to do, and um, and 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 other so-called democratic socialists are trying to transform the American economy into a socialist economy over time, right? But to, to go the other direction to transform a, 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 a centralized economy, a socialist economy into a capitalist economy, I, I think it, it can be done, but it's a little like trying to take an omelet and make it into eggs. After you've already cracked the shells, it's a lot of gluing in order to get, get back there and hard to do. And part of what happened, I think, for him is the perestroika didn't work very well. You couldn't have competition and government and government factory, you couldn't have all that. And then people began to criticize that it wasn't working and get angry and angry at him and, and all that. And so it all fell apart. 
Um, this is this 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 is a digression. I think we won't go on today. I think, but I think the Chinese watched that carefully and took lessons from that about not opening up, about not having freedom. But I also think people exaggerated in terms of China how how capitalist they wanted to go because they 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 didn't. And Deng Xiaoping, that's a whole argument whether Deng Xiaoping's policies are really different or from Xi Jinping's or whether they he he understood this he was just making a transition and he wanted the you know cats to catch the mice, but eventually uh, it was going to get back to where it is today. Anyhow, I, I digress, don't I? But I. No, no, no. But, but, but I think I think you're, you're, you're hitting upon something very important because none of this happened in a vacuum back then and none of it's happening in a vacuum now. And the enduring lesson of Gorbachev and you see this uh, in every obituary, every hagiography that you get uh, that you're getting now in mm. the press after his death was that Gorbachev made the sort of the brave, you know, depending on how you depict it, the brave decision, the foolish mm. decision, you know, the decision to not rely on force the way his predecessors did to make sure that the Soviet Union stayed together. And for some in the West, that is an unalloyed good. But mm-hmm. for others, like Vladimir Putin, like mm. uh, Xi Jinping in China, this is a fatal flaw. It's what doomed the Soviet Union. It's not that the Soviet Union was so corrupt that it couldn't stay together. It was that there wasn't enough personal political will to keep it together. And I think that's a, a very important lesson that people like Vladimir Putin today when they're trying to rebuild the Russian Empire, uh, China, when uh, China's trying to sort of to elevate the Middle Kingdom, they're looking at this and saying, you know what, we're not going to go that route. I, no, that's right. We're going to get back to some of this, but you're right, because he was not going to send troops into, say, the satellite countries uh, of the of the Warsaw Pact um, and, in order to make sure, in order to enforce what, what we knew as the Brezhnev Doctrine, the Brezhnev Doctrine being that once a country becomes communist. It cannot go back, right? Uh, it's a little bit like, and this gets back to your the, the book you, you, you wrote, uh, once a country is conquered by Islamic armies, it cannot be ruled by infidels ever again. That's why none of Palestine can be ruled including Judea, for example, by Jews, because it was conquered. That's why Spain should be back under. But that, And that's only the beginning because it's supposed to go on from there until the whole world is Dar al-Islam, ruled by Sharia law, et cetera. But again, I'm digressing. I don't mean to, but it's I can't help it. Okay, but I think enough about Gorby. Let's talk about Russia's war against Ukraine. You had an article this week in Newsweek about that, you write, by virtually every metric, the past half year has been nothing short of ruinous for the Kremlin. Okay. Uh, how do you figure? Right. So so there's, there's a, a huge uh, divide that exists right now between the public perceptions of what's happening uh, in Russia as a result of the war and what's actually happening, the, the objective economic metrics, the objective military metrics. So the Russian uh, officials, um, Vladimir Putin and his cronies, are doing a very good job of putting on a brave face. They talk about the fact that the the Russian ruble, which initially cratered as a result of Western sanctions, has uh, has risen, has stabilized, that they're trading with alternate partners, partners like Iran, partners like China, um, rather than Western partners. But that effectively, you know, they may not be thriving, but they're surviving is effectively the, the narrative that's coming out of the Kremlin. There's a grain of truth to that. But in terms of the metrics that I think matter, right, military prowess, political, internal political stability, economic solvency over the long term, uh, this war has been 
nothing but catastrophic for the Kremlin. We all know and we all witnessed the pretty spectacular battlefield stumbles that the Russian military experienced in the early days of the war. Remember, the special military operation, as Vladimir Putin called it, was only supposed to last three days. And the Russian military was going supposed to swoop down on Kiev, uh, the capital of Ukraine, and uh, effectively do regime change, denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. And this was all supposed to be done in this sort of blitzkrieg uh, offensive, and it didn't turn out that way. In fact, uh, the Ukrainian military pretty consistently in the first ha- uh, first half of the campaign, the first three months of what is now has now become a six-month campaign, was eating the Russian military's lunch in spectacular terms, to the point where the U.S. intelligence community in August estimated that uh, the Russians so far have lost in excess of 60,000 troops, right? More than the entirety of the number of troops that the Soviet Union lost during a decade of occupation in Afghanistan in the 1980s, right? This is not a success. And uh, this, uh, and you're seeing all sorts of other uh, sort of signs that the Russian military is not 10 feet tall, right? Which, which I think is actually a very huge point because in the last quarter century, we in the United States and we in the West have been excellent at deterring ourselves, at self-deterring from conflict with Russia. Because somehow in the post-Cold War era, this mystique about Russia having this robust military, uh, Russia being you know, this uh, military juggernaut has taken hold in the popular imagination in the West to the point where uh, officials in multiple European capitals for years went, you know, bent over backwards, went to great lengths not to antagonize the Kremlin, not to provoke Moscow, you know, tempering their uh, European urges for energy independence, for example, uh, scaling down uh, military plans for the expansion of NATO, right? All with the the specter uh, in the back of their minds that, you know, Russia may get angry and, you know, you don't want to see Russia angry, uh, to paraphrase Bruce Banner. Um, and what we're actually seeing now is that the Russian military is not 10 feet tall, right? The uh, I, I, what the sort of the, the greatest phrase I ever heard um, uh, was something I heard a couple of weeks ago from somebody who said to me, and I'm, I'm sure it's not not his own phrase. It's something that he's paraphrasing as well. But but the narrative still stands. Uh, Russia's military started the Ukraine war as the second strongest military in Europe. It is now the second strongest military in Ukraine. And that, that's a pretty profound transformation, right? So, so in terms of uh, objective military strength, this is not something that uh, the Russian brass, Russian officials can really uh, hang their hat on and say, you know, we're acquitting ourselves well. Okay, a couple of questions arise. One is, if you're Putin, nonetheless, you say this is not working out the way I had hoped, but I'm going to pull this out. I'm this at the end of the day, I still win. I still have I, I still have more bullets. I still have more cannon fodder i'm 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 going to i'm you know if it if it takes another 60,000 or another six i don't care i'll do it and of course russian militaries have in the past worked in that way in the sense of just overwhelming numbers right that's often been so i i mean i i wonder if you think that that's still a possibility i think people like tucker carlson are saying yeah they're going to win and I also think it's possible that as the cold winter comes, it is, after all, we're, yes, we in the West are sanctioning the Russians, but the Russians are the ones who are saying, you know what, I don't think you guys are going to get as much uh, oil and gas this year as you did last year. We don't care. I, th- I think not. We're going to, we have to work on some things here. And the Germans and others are like, oh my God, what are we going to do? People are going to freeze and all that. Um, 
uh, start with that, but I got two more quick questions coming after that. Right. No, no. And, and I, I think that's a that's a valid observation. It's a valid criticism. And, you know, the economic picture is more mixed. It's less stark than the military picture. But I think it still cuts in favor of Ukraine and in favor of the West for a couple of reasons. So uh, it's clear uh, that, you know, you have this uh, plan for uh, shrinking down uh, Western consumption of Russian oil and natural gas. Um, the sixth European sanctions package, which was passed in July, th that's the plan, right? The plan is by the end of the year to essentially wean, uh, wean Europe and wean the West more broadly off of Russian oil and natural gas almost completely. The problem is, of course, that the market is fungible and uh, gas uh, prices and uh, oil prices are going up. And as they go up, Russia has to sell less to make the same amount of money. And there are alternative suppliers, uh, uh, excuse me, alternative consumers like uh, China, for example, that are more than happy to buy Russian energy at a discount, right? And so what you're seeing is that the Russian energy uh, sales, right, the Russian energy exports are not dwindling as quickly as uh, we would like here in the West. And they, the sort of the Russians are pointing to that uh, on their part and saying, you know what, we're resilient, we can survive, right? It, it, we're going to tighten our belt a little bit, but we can survive. But if you take the long-term view, if you don't look just at energy, but look at the long arc of the Russian economy, what you're seeing is this great leap backwards that the Russians are taking. You know, a, a great example uh, that I like to use is the Russian airline industry. So the Russian airline industry has been among the hardest hit um, in as a result of the cessation of the supplying of Western parts. Um, you know, the, the Russian airlines can no longer travel over large swaths of Europe. There's really been this narrowing of the corridor. Uh, and the narrowing of uh, capability in terms of the Russian airline industry to the point where the Russian national air carrier, Aeroflot, is now cannibalizing its own fleet to keep a smaller number of planes in the air, in the skies, right? And you're seeing the same sort of thing happening with the Russian automotive industry. Something like 70% uh, less cars were sold uh, in May than were sold a year earlier. Right, you're seeing this dramatic narrowing of uh, production, this uh, sort of this exodus of Western uh, companies, uh, of automakers, of Western airlines. Right, so that's why you, when you have studies like the recent study that was um, issued by the Yale University School of Management, which is which I cite in my article, you know, their take is, you know, in the macroeconomic sense, right, the Russian economy is trending backwards in a pretty dramatic fashion. Uh, and it's going to be very hard to restore. Um, and uh, I think I think there are things that Russia can do to ameliorate this. But the trend line to me, if you sort of look uh, from 60,000 feet, is is exactly that. If the Ukraine war had gone the way Putin had hoped and say in three days he had been able to take Kiev or Kiev, if we say want to say in Ukrainian rather than Russian, and uh, you know killed Zelensky and all the rest. Um, my guess is he would have said, "Okay, next on my list, uh, maybe Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Lithuania in particular." I would say for him, because he wants to get because he's got a part of Russia, it used to be part of Prussia, uh, that is that is not connected by land, and he'd want to make a land bridge to Kaliningrad, right? So. Now, my question is this. If I'm the president of Lithuania, do I think at this point, whew, okay, it, whatever happens in Ukraine, he's not going to want to send his troops here and have another fight. Uh, so I, I'm in better shape than I than I expected I would be at this point. And, uh, do you think that's true? 
Well, yes and no, right? I mean, because because I think that formula uh, most definitely applies, but the story of the Ukraine war isn't written yet, right? Um, and so, you know, what what the way I would like to think about it um, is that everyone right now is playing a waiting game. Uh, the uh, West is waiting. They're waiting for sanctions to kick in in earnest, right? They're waiting for this uh, summer uh, sanctions package to begin really drawing down consumption of Russian energy, thereby raising the costs of Russia's war effort in a way that they hope uh, Russia won't be able to replace with uh, oil sales to places like China. Um, you have uh, the Ukrainians who are waiting, and actually, they're right now they're moving. Right there's a the Ukrainian counteroffensive that's taking place in places like Kherson. But overall, they're waiting because they think you know they were looking at the early stages of the war where they acquitted themselves remarkably well, and it's built up this confidence that uh, suggests you know when you talk to people in Kiev, they say you know what we can persevere. We just need to wait for the Western weapons to arrive, and we can persevere. Right, so they're waiting, and the weapons are coming. Right, uh, I, I think uh, more slowly than the Ukrainians would like, but they're coming. And the Russians are waiting, and the Russians are waiting for things like the U.S. midterm elections because they understand that ultimately all politics are local, and the longer the war drags on, the more the this idea of Ukraine fatigue sets in. So it may be a very compelling case in April, May. Uh, to advocate in favor of a very large aid package, including military aid to Ukraine, it's a completely different story if you do it in late October. Okay, um, so, and mm -hmm. the Russians sort of understand this formula, and that's why the Russians are waiting as well. So you have this interesting dynamic that's taking place now where on the battlefield, right? I mean, there's still, you know, there's an active line of contact, sort of, you know, uh, they're trading fire. The Ukrainians are winning because they're not losing. And the Russians are losing because they're not winning. But that's a formula that can change. And all of the neighbors and all of the former Soviet satellites are watching this very closely because they understand this, this sort of this age old lesson very well. Um, all Russian empires include Ukraine. There has never been a Russian empire that doesn't have Ukraine, right? Uh, Ukraine is the prerequisite. And that's why Ukraine is really exactly what its officials say. Ukraine is the bellwether. And we got. To, I would kind of come back to that because that gets to your the article you recently wrote that I that I called you after reading. But before I want to one more thing here. I want to draw out. You mentioned Kherson. I want to make sure listeners understand what we're talking about here. This is a region, a city in the southern Ukraine, and for months the Ukrainians have been essentially saying that they're going to have that they're going to have a big battle to push the Russian forces out of Kherson uh, and to the western bank of the Dnieper River. Here's the reason why this is important. If the Russians take Kherson, then they have a chance to go further west to Odessa. If they were to get Odessa and grab Odessa, at that point, essentially, they have not just the east of Ukraine, but the south. And Ukraine now, at that point, becomes a landlocked country. It can't survive as a landlocked country. At that point, it falls to Russia. So what the Ukrainian military has to try to do, it seems to me, and they may have been started this, it's not entirely clear, is push the Russians out, cut off their supply lines, kill them in Kherson, and push them back towards the east, towards Donbass, so that they continue to have this coastline. And then they have 
they have they have they have prevented not only the capital from falling, but the southern coastline from entirely falling. Maripol, the Russians still have, I know that's important. The land bridge to Crimea, they still have. But one more thing I'll say before the Jew, and that is the rather boldly. Zelensky and his military has been hitting targets in Crimea because everybody said from Kissinger on, okay, you know, that's status quo ante. That's what the, the Russians took in 2014. They're going to, at the end of the day, continue to have Crimea. Zelensky at least is talking like, not so quick, you guys. We're going after you in Crimea. We're going to hit your where you have your armaments. We're going to make people uncomfortable there. We're going to have an evacuation route if people want to escape because we're going to fight you there too. So I don't know how this come, comes out, but I think that southern Ukraine the area, that could be the pivotal battle. Am I wrong? No, no, I, I think that's exactly right. And it's actually uh, exactly right for two additional reasons, in addition to the ones you mentioned. Um, one has to do with Ukrainian exports, uh, right? And I, I uh, have I travel a lot, um, and I travel was in the Middle East uh, in uh, right before the war, and then uh, sort of you know shortly after. And what struck me was the degree to which everybody in the Middle East, everybody in Africa, is petrified by the second order and third order effects of the war, uh, the the effects that are kicking in now. In particular, the food security question, because the Ukraine war. Uh, is reverberating in terms of uh, global energy prices and global food prices in a way that uh, vulnerable countries in Africa, in particular, are having a real hard time dealing with. And the so, Middle East. No, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, the Egypt, East. you know, yeah, yeah. and the Middle East. And, but by way, you know, by way of comparison, just so yeah. so the audience understands, um, the in the first in the early stages of the war in in you know February March, um, energy prices exceeded the level they were at globally when the Arab Spring kicked in, in late 2010, 2011, right? So when you're a uh, when you're sitting atop a fairly rickety government structure in North Africa uh, or in the Middle East or in the Levant, and you're looking at this, uh, the specter of the Arab Spring and the turmoil that took place uh, uh, sort of throughout the region then looms very large. And that's why you're hearing more and more calls from multiple governments for, you know, a regional food bank, for international food assistance. But a lot of it has to do with Ukrainian exports, because Ukraine is a major supplier of grain to all of these different countries, but also to Europe. And so, you know, the Europeans have a food security stake in what's happening here as well. And that's why um, the Baltic states have been talking about breaking the de facto Russian cordon of the coastline, uh, having a coalition of the willing, not a NATO operation, but a coalition of the willing to allow ships to transit out um, because they understand that the Russia-Ukraine war is actually a global resource war as well. So that's one reason. The second reason is because if you look at a map, if you go back to 2014 and you know, do a Google search and look at the term Novorossiya, right, which, which translates to New Russia, uh, it is the master plan uh, of uh, Vladimir Putin and some of his ideologues, guys like Alexander Dugin, for example. We'll, we'll talk about we'll, we'll, no, no, we'll talk about Dugin in a second. We're going to talk about, about Dugin. Talk about exactly this, I promise, because that's your article. But I but I want one more subject before we get to that, and before you go to that, and be just briefly. And you brought it up with me earlier, not on this recording. The Islamic Republic of Iran is sending drones to Vladimir Putin so he can use them to kill Ukrainians. Go. 
<laughs> right. Well, so so to me, this is maybe the most fascinating, um, uh, you know, in a tragic way. So maybe the most fascinating turnaround uh, in the circumstances of you of uh, Russia and the circumstances of Iran simultaneously, because historically Russia and Iran have had a strategic partnership in which Russia is unquestionably the senior partner. Russia has been carrying the diplomatic water for the Islamic Republic of Iran in multilateral fora like the United Nations, has been diluting international sanctions against the Iranian regime, has been effectively uh, providing top cover for Iran's ayatollahs for as long as we can remember, right, for a quarter century. Um, And now all of a sudden you have a situation where the shoe is on the other foot. Since February, Russia has become the junior partner. Russia is the one that is increasingly internationally marginalized, uh, increasingly not welcome in Western company, uh, is being sanctioned, you know, in a pretty dramatic fashion. And Iran is being rehabilitated, right, in large part because because the Biden administration is hell-bent on a return to the broad contours of the 2015 nuclear deal that President Obama uh, hammered out. And yeah, there's and all you, sorts and of- huge mistake, huge mistake, huge no, no, mistake. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, but, you know, the policy, yeah. uh, th- this yeah. idea drives the policy. And so what you're looking at is an Iran that is increasingly uh, breathing easier in economic terms. It's anticipating uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in terms of direct and indirect sanctions relief, a reintegration into the global economy, to the point where it is now, it can see itself on more stable economic footing than the Russian Federation can. And so now, you know, instead of uh, Iranian officials going to Moscow to kiss Vladimir Putin's ring, it's Vladimir Putin who's traveling to Tehran to ask for economic assistance and to ask for military material, like drones, that can be thrown into the into the meat grinder that the Ukrainian war has become. Now, you know, I, I think it's uh, to to the uh, to the benefit of the Ukrainians that those drones, by all accounts, don't seem to be working very well. But to me, the larger significance here is that what you're looking at is a strategic relationship historically that's been turned on its head. And by the way, another digression, but I'm not, I'm not going to talk about this today. But both the Islamic Republic of Iran and Putin's Russia are junior partners to Xi Jinping. In they have a new act, they have an axis, an increasingly cohesive axis. They are waging a cold war against the United States, and unfortunately, I don't think that President Biden, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan seem to understand that these that there is an axis fighting a cold war against us. Or if they do understand, they haven't come up with a policy or a strategy to fight to, to fight back and defend ourselves. They just don't seem to get it, or they just don't seem to know what to do about it. But they're going to make it worse if they give hundreds of billions of dollars to the to a junior partner of Xi Jinping and a senior partner of Putin's Russia. All right, that, we could go on. That that could be a whole subject of discussion. And it could be a column by you. It could be a column by me, but we'll leave it for, for now. Okay, on to why this war began. That's the topic of your essay in the Journal of Policy and Strategy, Volume 2, Issue Number 3. I'm sure all our listeners have copies on their nightstands right now. Uh, the piece is called The Sources of Russian Conduct, and it opens with George Keenan in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, 1946, writing what became known as the Long Telegram. And this does get back to what I was just saying, because he was trying to communicate to Washington a reality that Washington didn't understand at that point. 
which is what I was just saying. Well, Washington doesn't understand the reality at this point. Um, so maybe what you should do is talk a little bit about why you started with that. I think it's because the reason I just said we're not understanding here in Washington for the our leaders or not what rushes up to and why. Right. And it's the why that is so important, right? So, so when Kennan wrote his piece, right, which was then what was so influential, right, it became known as the long telegram because it's, it's an overly long uh, diplomatic cable. It got published the following year uh, pseudonymously as the X article in Foreign Affairs, right? It effectively laid the architecture for everything that came after, for the long war containment strategy um, and, and sort of numerous uh, executive orders and National Security Council directives that helped the United States uh, fight uh, the Cold War in ideological terms and in economic and political terms as well. And all of that came from the why, right? Because Kennan did a very good job in explaining from his perch in Moscow what he saw the Russians holding dear, effectively what the Soviet strategic culture was at the time, right? And that's the necessary predicate for building any serious strategy. You have to understand what your adversary wants and how he is trying to go, he's going to set about trying to achieve it, right? And so you fast forward uh, three quarters of a century, and we're in a place where we were, I mean, candidly, we were caught flat-footed uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, we we heard uh, sort of up and down, right? The conventional wisdom in Washington and other European capitals was, well, he's not serious. He doesn't really want Ukraine. He's not going to do it, right? Uh, war is such a 20th century construct, um, as uh, the former Secretary of State John Kerry uh, would, would famously <laughs> say. Um, and, and it turned out that they were wrong, right? And they were wrong, I would argue, because there is no orienting frame like Kennan's long telegram to explain um, what the Russians hold dear. Um, and, and again, right, this is, this is maybe slightly arrogantly, this is me trying, uh, at least uh, trying to start this conversation and trying to explain some of the strategic drivers that I've been studying for you know, 20 years uh, in, in terms of Russian policy, right? One of them is um, Russian imperialism. Right. Uh, the, the sort of the, this idea of a resurgent, you know, reversion to far right politics in Russia, a resurgence of the Russian imperial ethos. And this is, by the way, as I said, why Ukraine becomes so important, because every Russian empire includes Ukraine. Right. Kiev and Rus was the seat of the Russian empire before it became St. Petersburg and then Moscow. Right. Um, and so Ukraine is not just another country. It's an indispensable part of a greater Russia. I mean, two points to stress. One is Keenan understood that there was going to be a Cold War, that it was going to be a long war. I think he even used the phrase long war. People then didn't say, or maybe some did, but they didn't prevail. Oh, no, we can't have that. A long war is a forever war. It's an endless war. Why can't we give the Soviets something to make them stop? As you have right now all the isolationists on the left and the right. Oh, forever war, long war. We can't have that. No, no, no. He understood this is going to go on. We need a strategy. We need a way to, to prevail as, as, as we do this. Also very important, I think, and this is this, I'm just drawing out what you were saying. If you think about it, Russia has never been before now a nation state. It is always, it emerged as an empire. The Soviet Union rebranded itself, but the reality was that it, it, it was the Russian empire, even while saying imperialism, we oppose imperialism. It was absolutely an imperialist empire. And, and, the, and it hasn't, Russia did not post Gorbachev 
adjust to becoming a nation state. As Europeans, I mean, Portugal doesn't think about, oh, we miss our empire. The Dutch don't, the Swedish don't think that. People don't know the Swedes. The Lithuanians had an empire at one point. The world was organized by empires, right? The so we, and, and Putin is essentially saying, and you get into this in your article, we can't exist as a simple nation state. We just can't. Our population is not large enough. We only have one thing to sell. But if we have Ukraine, that gives us wheat, agricultural products, and a big boost to our population. And then we have Belarus, which is not officially part of the Russian Empire, but Lukashenko knows to bow down and kiss Putin's shoes when he has to. And if he, if, if Putin wanted to take Belarus more directly, he could do so. That wouldn't be, a, I think, a heavy lift. Uh, but then he wants to go on from there. This is very important because you also hear people say, again, a lot of them, the isolationists, the so-called restra restrainers, what an interesting euphemism that is. Oh, this, this is because Putin was very worried that NATO was coming after him. NATO was going to come take over his country. NATO threatened him. Ukraine was going to join NATO, which it wasn't. It, it takes a, there's no way it was coming into NATO. Look how hard it is for Finland and Sweden to get in because of Turkey. Germany wouldn't even want it. None of that is true. This is about Putin seeing himself as the czar and the czar's responsibility. His mission is to restore the empire and expand it if he can. That, that's why he sees himself. We may see him as Ivan the Terrible. He sees himself as Peter the Great. Is Peter I right great. on that? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 you know, to that point, imperialism comes in different flavors, right? And so because we don't have an orienting frame, because we don't understand the models of emulation that Vladimir Putin has, you have a lot of policymakers on the left and the right saying, you know, Vladimir Putin's a bad guy. He's trying to recreate the Soviet Union. And, you know, my point is, well, actually, not so fast. Uh, if you look at Vladimir Putin's February 21st speech, which he gave right before the Ukraine invasion, prefiguring the invasion, and then the February 24th speech, which was effectively his justification, his proof of concept for what he was doing. Um, he actually spends a lot of time denigrating, right, uh, not directly, but indirectly denigrating Soviet leaders like Stalin. Um, and, you know, he says so, uh, he says that, you know, uh, under Stalin, the Soviet Union essentially laid the groundwork for this problem that we're dealing with now. Why? Because they had a commissar of nationalities. They had this very delicate confederation in which the Ukrainians uh, somehow over the years got this mistaken idea that they were real boys and girls. And they're not. Russians and Ukrainians are one people, and we have to reunite them, uh, even if they don't know what's good for them. Right. And so this is a very fundamentally different thing. What he's effectively saying is the Russian Empire is the proper frame. The Soviet Union was too liberal, which is, I think, a pretty astounding concept. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, here's something people I think don't get. You do. Other people don't. That, look, if you live in people think if you live in Russia, you're a Russian, whether you're from Moscow or from Siberia or Vladivostok or in the Far East. And Vladivostok is further than St. Petersburg than is New York City. I remember one of my Russian roommates when I was an exchange student there pointing that out to me. What's not understood, I think, by most people is that there are many ethnicities, nationalities in these lands. They were conquered by Russia and they 
and and the Russians colonized these lands. That's why there are Russians in northern Siberia and Vladivostok. And the most obvious, you know, those in Central Asia, which we sort of know, Kazakhstan, Turkestan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Azerbaijan, all that. Now, people from those lands could live well, could do well, if they learned to speak good Russian and identified as Russian. The most obvious example, not from Central Asia, but from Southern, would be Joseph Stalin, right? That's not his name. He was born as Yosef Jugashvili. Stalin means man of steel. Interesting branding. And as you point out, before he became a murderous dictator that he was, he was the Soviet Union's commissar of nationalities. How do you treat all these conquered peoples? That's what it really means. What do you do about these people in Turkmenistan who are Muslim and who don't want to be liberated by communism? Now, I'm going to mention one additional figure in addition to Stalin, and you'll, you know, I guess you can guess, Sergei Shoigu. Sergei Shoigu is the Russian defense minister that Putin a few days ago sidelined, which is a clue to what you were saying, that Putin is not so happy with how the war is going. Who is Sergei Shoigu? He was born in 1955 in a remote and impoverished place called the Tuvan Autonomous Oblast, which is like right on the edge of Mongolia. Um, And his father was Tuvan. His mother was a Ukrainian-born Russian. That's how she is identified. Now, he is very close to Putin, or has been. Now, again, he may be on the outs because Putin's not happy. But he has em- he embraced, from what we know, r- the concept of Russian imperialism and the concept of Eurasianism. And now I'll go to you to say, tell people what Eurasianism is. So no, no, so 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 this this is this is the uh, the second leg of the stool, right? Uh, if uh, the allure of imperialism is the first leg, the second leg is the fact that you know uh, wanting a revival of empire is just an empty wish without an intellectual infrastructure, right? And Eurasianism is that infrastructure. Eurasianism is a very good encapsulation of the Russian yearning for a return as a great power, right? It's an ideology that is over a century old. Um, It has very deep roots in Russian literature, uh, in Russian culture, but it has been modernized. It's been modernized by, uh, frankly, very important people that most people in the West don't know about, people like Alexander Dugin, who is a far-right ideologue, uh, a Russian propagandist, a stalwart supporter of Russian expansionism, and someone who's come out as a vocal supporter of the Ukraine campaign precisely because it feeds into this narrative that, as he would put it, uh, as he put it in his 1997 book, uh, Foundations of Geopolitics, Russia cannot exist outside of its essence as an empire, right? So for- It can't exist as a nation state. That gets back to what I was saying. Can't be just a nation state. Precisely right. Precisely right. uh, Russia is not a normal country, right? And people who denigrate Russia- uh, would say that it's not a normal country because it doesn't function uh, properly in economic and political terms. The other side says Russia is not a normal country because it deserves more, right? That the role that Russia has now is a diminution of its natural historical destiny. And this is sort of where Dugan is coming from. And, uh, you know, what you have is uh, my, my, my theory is that uh, every country has um, people who are sort of canaries in the coal mine, right? By following their political trajectories, you have a pretty good sense of which way politics in the country writ large are, are flowing. And Dugan is 
for me, that guy in Russia. He started out as a lowly KGB archivist uh, in the uh, sort of in the heady years uh, in the 19, uh, late 1990s uh, up until uh, September 11th and a little bit after. He rose to prominence as being an advisor to some pretty prominent Russian uh, parliamentarians, right, articulating this ideology of empire. This was the period where he wrote his book, Foundations of Geopolitics, um, when uh, in the latter aughts, uh, the Russian presidential tandem shifted when uh, Dmitry Medvedev uh, cycled out of the post as prime minister and became president. Uh, this was a sort of a, a slightly more pragmatic phase. And, and uh, Dugan was relegated to uh, the halls of academia. He taught at uh, Moscow State University. Um, for a, a number of years. And then Vladimir Putin comes back. The sort of the I ideology of imperialism is, uh, I mean, it never really went away, but it was sort of, you know, has woken up once more. And Dugan is now, again, sort of on the front lines and he's sort of articulating uh, new uh, new avenues, new areas for imperialist expansion, right? So his, his um, he's been, he was the guy who articulated the messaging uh, for Novorossiya that was used uh, in Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine and occupation of Crimea, right? So he is sort of very much intimately involved in shaping the narrative of a greater Russia. And, and I'm going to test that a little bit of thesis on you that, I've, that, that has occurred to me. And if it's really, if, if this is really off base, we can always cut it out of the, the interview. But, <laughs> but here's what it is. So after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, Kamal Ataturk, what does he say? I am so proud to be a Turk, right? And what people don't understand about that is to call someone a Turk previously under the Ottoman Empire was a terrible insult. The idea of being proud of being Turkish, and then you were from Central Asia. It was a, and he's turned this around. And almost in the, in the same way, when I was a kid in, in school in New York City, very pejorative to call somebody a queer. And today you have queer theory and queer and people are proud of being queer and they try to turn around. Now, when I was an exchange student in Russia, the idea of saying to a Russian, you're not really a European, you know, you were hundreds of years under the Mon Mongol yoke. You were conquered by the Asians. If there was a, 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 the prejudice of Russians against Asians, against Chinese was very obvious back then. In a way, Eurasianism says, no, we're proud that we're not just Europeans. We're proud that, of our Asian heritage. We're proud of going back to that. It kind of turns it around in that same sort of way. Do you, do you buy that or is that crazy? No, absolutely. And, and actually, so Eurasianism is Russian exceptionalism, right? Because if you think about it, looking out from Moscow at sort of, you know, an unwell, uh, uh, inhospitable West at uh, an Asia where Russia doesn't really fit, um, Eurasianism is the frame that allows Russians to say, we are great, we are distinct, right? We're not European and we're not Asian. We're something in the middle. We're our own identity. And that's, you know, I, I credit that exceptionalism and the allure of that exceptionalism to the sort of this resurgence of, you know, uh, the sort of the call for a strong Russia, the call for a Russia that is antagonistic rather than cooperative with uh, you know, the West, right? The, the Eurasianism posits confrontation between a distinct Eurasian civilizational identity and the West, which is something else entirely. It's not about assimilation. It's about distinctness and pride. And let me get your take on this too. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the great Russian writers of all time, 
he was not a Eurasianist, but there was some leaning. I mean, was Eurasianism light? Would you say? Would that be fair? How would you? How would you? Because, I, I, from what I gather, Putin liked Solzhenitsyn. It's not clear that Solzhenitsyn, when he was alive, liked Putin. Like you know Putin. what I mean? Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And so, so I think that's precisely right. And and Solzhenitsyn wrote. Um, uh, this book in the 1990s, right? I mean, we're, we're all sort of, you know, we all remember the Gulag Archipelago and the First Circle and sort of, you know, all his literary masterpieces. But he actually wrote a book in the 1990s called The Russian Question, in which he lamented not the sort of the collapse of the Russian Empire. He wasn't a, a call for Eurasianism per se, but he did talk about how he was very sad about the way the Soviet Union broke up because it artificially created boundaries between people who were ethnically Russian. Right. So he talked about the concept of a greater Russian state and in a way that was enormously appealing to Russian politicians, so much so that back in, I, I believe it was 1996, he was actually uh, given uh, the opportunity to give a speech on this issue on the floor of the Duma, the lower house of the Russian parliament. Right. If, if uh, it was effectively like testifying before Congress about the need for a restored Russian state. Right. That's a pretty strong endorsement. Um, and that's why Solzhenitsyn, even though we know him as an anti-communist icon, and he definitely was, it doesn't mean that he wasn't a nationalist. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. And, you know, and I would always argue there's nationalism and there's nationalism, right? I mean, national. I think there's nothing wrong with loving your nation. There's nothing long, wrong with wanting your nation to succeed. It's patriotism, essentially, right? But you can take nationalism too far, especially when you say other peoples of the world have to bow to us and have to understand that our nation will dominate them. And that is exactly what Putin is saying about the Baltics. I think even about Poland, about other Slavic nations. I think about Central Asian nations like Kazakhstan, which has a fairly large Russian population due to Russia, Soviet colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of people, this is complicated. A lot of us thought, okay, there will not be support for what Putin is doing inside Russia. Uh, there is and there isn't. And you talk about this in your article in terms of, uh, of whether Putin has struck a nerve uh, among uh, um, among Russians with what he is doing and is getting more support. More support. Go ahead on that. Right, right. No, well, and, and I, I think that's an important point because there is this sense that um, the Russians, of course, have to be as appalled by the, the current turn of events as we are in the West, right? And there are a, a fairly healthy percentage of Russians that are. In fact, I mean, th there aren't good numbers for this, right? But the anecdotal um, anecdotal stories that I hear from folks whose you know families have left in whole or in part have left Russia because they, they simply can't condone it. Um, you know, uh, if you were to sort of on the back of the envelope, sort of try to calculate, you're looking at anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000 people uh, that have left the country uh, just because of this issue in the last six months. Right. And a and, lot and of them. And a lot of them are going to be people who are highly educated, who have skills they can sell in the West, who have linguistic abilities. You know, this is a very important part of the population. When you lose that part of the population, the impact, it may not be immediate, but the impact is long lasting. And that gets back to what you were saying about. No, that's precisely right. That's precisely right. And and, and actually, so, you know, like, like the Chinese say, right, uh, the character for danger is both crisis and opportunity, right? Um, it is an, it should be seen as an opportunity for us that you have Russians who are skilled, you know, in science and technology and mathematics and engineering who are seeking an alternative identity in the West, right? These aren't people that we should shy away from, 
um, you know, unfortunately, sort of, you know, the global politics are trending towards the protectionist currently. But I see this as an enormous opportunity for the countries that are smart enough to seize it, because eventually, eventually, uh, the Russian state is going to get wise and it's going to lure these people back, right? Because every war must end, right? It's going to lure these people back with cash payoffs, with property, with whatever it is, because the Kremlin is seeing exactly what you and I are seeing, which is that there is an emptying of Russia, uh, at least in terms of its creative class. And, you know, it's something that Vladimir Putin very much wants to reverse. But this gets me actually to sort of to, to that last that last leg of the stool, which is demographics, right? Because uh, a healthy population is the lifeblood of a healthy nation, right? And this is sort of, you know, the uh, sort of the watchword of the day is that Russia aspires to great power status, but it's running third world demographics. The pace of its population, the health of its population are abysmal. Um, and, you know, this rubs up pretty dramatically against Russia's self-conception of itself as an incipient empire. Uh, but it's also something that Vladimir Putin is, has been trying to correct for a number of years, right? There's every, if you, if you go on Google and you look up things like the maternal capital campaign, right? This was a campaign that Putin uh, initiated uh, 10, 12 years ago, where he essentially paid off Russian mothers of childbearing age to have more children. It didn't really work out that well, right? It, it sort of it spread more money around, but it didn't really change the demographic trajectory of Russia. It's still a downward spiral. And as this spiral has accelerated and deepened, it has actually reinforced those other things that we talked about. It's reinforced the Russian imperial impulse. Because if you can't rebuild your country as it currently stands, if you can't rebuild the population, the only way to expand your population is by acquiring new lands. And by the way, right on the borders in places like Kazakhstan, in places like Belarus, uh, and in places most uh, distinctly like Ukraine, there are uh, people that Russia considers ethnic Russians that if they were absorbed into the larger collective would at least temporarily allevi uh, alleviate, uh, moderate the Russian demographic problem, right? So those three things really nest together really nicely. The Russian uh, imperial impulse, the ideology that undergirds it, and this demographic drive to, you know, in order for Russia to be an empire, it has to have more people. And so you, ipso facto, have to annex more lands, lands that you want to annex anyway. Right, right, right. All right. We will, we will, uh, we will, we will end with this question. And what's, would be how Lenin would say, what do you do? What's to be done? What's to be done by America? What's to be done by the West? What's, what is Putin going to do? Uh, and I don't ask you to make predictions unless you want to. I think predictions are hard because there's just so many variables that come into, come into play. But let's talk about, talk a little bit about, pol about policy and whichever of those policies strike you as most interesting. So uh, I, I think it's a great question, right? Uh, at, the, at the risk of uh, talking out of school a little bit, um, I want to go back to Alexander Dugan uh, for a, a very simple reason, because, uh, you know, tragically, he just lost a child. Uh, in, on August 20th, there was a car bombing in Moscow that claimed the life of his daughter, Daria Dugan, who in her own right, she was in her 30s. In her own right, she was a very outspoken ultra-nationalist. She headed up a disinformation website. Uh, called United World International, but her main attribute was that she was a foil for him. And right, and, and the conventional wisdom is that she was killed because she was driving his car and uh, that, that he, he was really targeted. And this is where it, it gets really, I mean, grim, but very interesting. Because we don't know by whom the Russians are saying the Ukrainians. I find that exactly. kind of doubtful. Exactly. And, and this is precisely why it becomes so important, because you could see this conflict going in a number of ways. 
Uh, and this killing being this sort of very significant pivot point, uh, right? Because the Russians have been very quick to blame Ukraine and have been saying that, you know, an Ukrainian national whom they've identified um, is responsible and uh, arguing that this is a casus belli, right? In much the same way that um, for those uh, of the listeners that remember, the uh, Moscow apartment bombings uh, in the 1990s were the excuse, right? Because there's all sorts of problems that uh, sort of uh, are associated with that. The excuse that was uh, used by the Kremlin to uh, initiate the second Chechen war. Um, And so, you know, there's a fear that, you know, this, uh, no matter who did it, if it's uh, it's pinned on the Ukrainians, it gives the Russians an excuse to escalate further, right? So that's one variable. Uh, Another scenario is that this is actually Ukraine becoming bolder and being able to strike not just at targets in Crimea, but being able to strike at tar- targets within the Russian soil, right? The Ukrainians are denying this, but that's obviously a possibility. A third scenario is that, uh, th- and, and th- this sort of this line of questioning has emerged in recent days, uh, that uh, this was actually being perpetrated by Russian nationalists. That what you have inside Russia is a group of increasingly vocal and increasingly active opponents of Vladimir Putin that are no longer sitting on the sidelines, but they're at least organizing, you know, civil disobedience, including potentially violence. And, um, you know, a former uh, Duma deputy um, named Ilya Ponomarov has come out publicly saying he's the spokesman for this group. Um, and this group has claimed responsibility. Uh, there's no no indication that this is actually true, that this is actually attributable, but it, it does insert an interesting wrinkle. And the fourth scenario is that, uh, you know, this could have potentially uh, been a strike by the Kremlin itself, right? Because Vladimir, uh, strike by the Kremlin itself because Alexander Dugan is a true believer. He is an ideologue. He is not somebody who uh, would take kindly to a Russian push to de-escalate the Ukraine campaign. And so this may have been a preemptive strike by the Russians to uh, essentially sideline their own potential future opposition. And again, right, this is just speculation, but it gives you a sense of how complicated this conflict is and how much uh, the Ukraine war has become interwoven into Russian self-image, into the Russian idea of imperialism and ideology. And so this is this is definitely a space to watch. And I guess you and I would agree that at this point, from the U.S. and Western European point of view, we need to continue to support Zelensky and Ukraine. That we And the main reason is sentimentalism aside, Zelensky is an aspiring figure and all that. And the Ukrainians, you know, are uh, fighting for their, for their, for their national existence and all that. But we want Putin to fail here. And that, because that's one, Putin is one important part of this axis of China, People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party, Vladimir Putin's extreme nationalism, and the Islamic Republic of Iran that are fighting a cold war against us, the United States. This is what some of the isolationists and restrainers and maybe Tucker Carlson don't seem to understand. Our support for Ukrainians is not primarily a matter of altruism. It's a matter of self-interest. The altruism is nice, but that's not what this is about. You agree with me? I, I do. Um, and, and so two further points here, because because I think this is absolutely right. and It's the, the proper frame to think about it. Um, first of all, that Ukraine is the Ukraine war is not just about Ukraine. The Ukraine war, Ukraine is the canary in the coal mine. If Ukraine falls, there is every 
every good reason to believe that Vladimir Putin will then set its sights on other territories for all of the reasons that we just discussed, right? So no matter what you think about Ukraine itself, whether the, the orienting question has to be whether you want Russian imperialism and Russian expansionism to continue, right? And that's, to me, that's the proper tactical frame to look at the war in. The, the larger strategic frame is exactly what you talked about. Look, we are at a unique moment in American history, right? We, uh, in terms of national security policy, the United States now faces not one, not two, but three incipient empires, countries that used to be empires and aspire to their imperial glory, right? There's China, the Chinese Middle Kingdom, which is rising again. There's Russia, which thankfully is, is stumbling in Ukraine, but that's not a permanent condition necessarily. And there's Iran, which talks very publicly about building a renewed sphere of influence exactly the way it did in the aftermath of the 2015 nuclear deal, building in the Gulf and in the Levant, right? So for the United States, taking these in isolation, I think, is a mugs game because they are intimately tied. So we would do well to think very carefully about these three empires, how they cooperate, how you know what their aspirations are. And we would do even better to think about strategies to make one, maybe two, and ideally all three of them fail. You know, I, uh, to listeners who may be on the right, I would say this is about American national interest. To listeners who may be on the left, I would say you claim you're anti-imperialists. That got to mean in the 21st century, not just in the 19th century and the 20th century, right? Um, and maybe we'll leave it there. Ilan Berman, thank you. It's always it's always stimulating and fun to talk to you. People should read you, and you 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 produce in a lot of places, but almost all your stuff is on pundicity.com, isn't it? On pundicity. Right, right. So uh pundit is funny, funny you should mention that. And I wish is, is, people should know pundicity.com because it's right, got a, right. it's an aggregator of a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so if, if people want, so we're, I'm uh, at uh, my think tank, the American Foreign Policy Council. We're online at afpc.org. Um, you can also read me, specifically me, at uh, elonberman.com, uh, mm-hmm. which is a pundicity site, right? I L A N B E R M A N.com. Um, you can sign up uh, to get my articles. You can, you can uh, listen there, but, um, or read there. But uh, yeah. Uh, and you've hope, got a podcast, and you've got a podcast too. I do. I do. I do. I, I, I try to I try to spread myself thin. So I have a podcast, which Cliff, you've been on. Uh, it's called Disinformation Wars. Uh, it's all about uh, a fairly niche topic, which is uh, fake news, disinformation, uh, information operations by foreign adversaries and uh, things like uh, social media regulation and things like that. Sounds boring. It's not boring because increasingly it's become this new domain where countries like China, countries like Russia, countries like Iran are exerting influence that they can't exert in the real world. Not boring at all. Fascinating to people like me and to all our wonky listeners out there. Uh, thank you again, Alon Bourbon. Thank you all for being with us today. Again, tell people about these this podcast. Let's spread it around. Uh, we're very grateful to have you rate us, subscribe to us, whatever you're supposed to do. And uh, until next time, I'm Cliff May and... You're listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. 
Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.